The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Congressman Jim McGovern is allegedly doing some actual McGoverning right now <gasps> and couldn't join us for today's show. My dad sent a crying emoji when I warned him that he wasn't going to be here today. But rest assured, Congressman McGovern will be back next Thursday. And we'll ask that listener question about Ukraine then. But later in the show, we'll find out about a couple of events being presented by the Nolan Becca Project in Greenfield this weekend. We'll be joined by Western Mass Rights of Nature's Livia Charles, Hartman Dietz from the Mashapee Wampanoag Tribe, and Diane Dix from the Nolan Becca Project. But first... Lisa Biggs is a performance studies scholar, actress, and playwright originally from the South Side of Chicago, whose work is grounded in questions about the role of the arts in movements for social justice, especially the work of theater and performance artists who are concerned about the lives and well-beings of black women and girls. She was a member of the former Living Stage Theater Company in Washington, D.C., where she appeared in hundreds of improvisational theater pieces and facilitated art workshops. She's been a part of productions at the Kennedy Center, Arena Stage, African Continuum Theater, the National Black Theater festival and lots, lots more. Dr. Biggs is the author of several original plays that reflect her passion for using theater and performance studies to unpack history, including Blackbirds, Butterfly Belongings, Vigilante Artist, and Memory is a Body of Water with Tanisha Christie. She was awarded a Knight Foundation Detroit Arts Challenge grant to develop and present a new stage play about women and girls in the 67 Detroit Rebellion. Afterlife premiered in Detroit in 2017 in conjunction with citywide events commemorating the 50th anniversary of the 67 uprising. She toured her most recent solo performance work, Where Spirit Rides, about 19th century women abolitionists across the United States. Her first book, The Healing Stage, Black Women, Incarceration, and the Art of Transformation, emerges from over a decade of research with some of the most brilliant and vulnerable members of our society, incarcerated women, focusing on prison and jail-based arts programs in the U.S. and South Africa. The book illustrates how black feminist cultural traditions enable women in correctional systems to look at the root of crime and the stereotypes surrounding the incarcerated. Dr. Biggs currently serves as the John Atwater and Diana Nelson Assistant Professor of the Arts and Africana Studies at Brown University in Providence, but she earned a BA in theater and dance here in the 413 from Amherst College and will be reading as part of Amherst College's Lit Fest this weekend. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor. So what was studying theater at Amherst College like? Well, we're going to go this the way back machine because um, <laughs> I'm class of 93. So the Valley was really different. The department, um, I think, as now as it is now, was pretty small. There were just a handful of us who majored in theater and dance. But because of that, I could make just about anything that I could dream of. I got fabulous training and I had full access to all of the studio. Actually, the the one dance studio at the time was in the, um, was next to the baseball cage. So there was not uh, dance studios like they have now. The buildings have really been transformed. The facilities are, are so much better now, but I had great teaching and I had small classes. And so I had lots of opportunities to play and to experiment and to, to struggle and then to, to try again. I was, I felt really nurtured. 
you have a stellar CV, as uh, you probably heard in the intro there, and I'm sure that you know because it's your CV. Uh, but I'm interested to know, because of all the incredible work that you've done using theater, what might have been inspirational to you as somebody who was growing up to show that, like, oh, I want to get into theater. I want to use my voice in this way. I want to bring my voice to the stage. That's a great question. Um, I, yeah, grew up on the south side of Chicago, and I was a super shy kid, super shy. So me and a friend, we double dog dared ourselves to audition for a play. The diary, it was called The Diary of Adam and Eve. We uh, were cast. Um, I primarily played an animal in the garden, but the director took a big chance on me and said, hey, can you understudy the fourth Eve? And I said, sure, you know, pretty confident that I would never go on. And then that young lady got mono two weeks before the show opened. So I spent the next two weeks, you know, when I wasn't in school or rehearsal in my room, desperately uh, learning my lines and rehearsing. And uh, the day of the show came, I remember, you know, doing my animal role in the garden for the first three scenes. And then um, I changed t-shirts from, you know, animal in the garden to my t-shirt that said Eve. (laughs) Yeah, big casting values here. Yeah, big money. It's all about the talent <laughs> and, uh, you bring to the stage. It's not always about the big budget production. That's true. It's true. As long as they know who is who. Yeah, and, right. And those T-shirts are showing them the way. Right, right. So, but what was incredible that that moment of putting the new T-shirt on it, I didn't know it at the time, but it actually like it was transformative for me. I stepped on stage, I said my first line, and then I dropped into a state of flow. And uh, I don't remember anything that happened after that, except at the end of the play with the last lines, I said the last lines, the other people joined me and whoever was playing Adam on stage, we took our bows and and that's what I remember next. Um, I had a completely out of body experience, but in the best sense, I felt whole and complete and full and in control in ways that I had never experienced before. And so that uh, low budget <laughs> middle school production <laughs> wound up really, it wound up being the, the thing that gave me, I got so much courage from it that I just kept looking for more and more and more opportunities. And then by the time I got to, to Amherst, I knew that I wanted to keep making theater. I couldn't have imagined that I would learn how to improvise and to dance there or that I would have a chance to run up to Smith College and take classes there with folks, um, with Andrea Hairston in particular, that I could run to UMass and take classes at New World Theater at the time. So, you know, once I graduated, I knew that I wanted to keep pursuing it. And so I worked for about 10 years as a professional actor, first in Chicago and then in, and in DC. And I got to living stage out of really a desire to return to a practice of making original art and making art with people. When I was an undergrad, I I developed a lot of uh, short new shows that said things that I was not seeing in the media or on stage anywhere. I mean, it's the 90s, right? Mm. It's the the time, it's the war on drugs. Most of the images of black women are of uh, maids, prostitutes, and crack addicts, and sometimes maids who are crack addict prostitutes. (laughs) <laughs> so, um, and, and, and it's crack novel. Mothers. They're all one. They're all together in one body. Yeah. So <laughs> I realized after I went to, I can't even tell you how many auditions for for things that I was in the wrong place. I need to. I needed to make 
art. I had stories that I wanted to tell and Living Stage became a place where I could reconnect with that creative process. I mean, as the introduction shared, I co-facilitated or facilitated workshops with many, many, many people uh, to help them tell their own stories through not the funny haha kind of improv, but long form uh, improv. But being there also reaffirmed and reignited my desire to, to tell stories. And so that's what I've been, been doing, trying to figure out how to pay the bills and pursue what I love. Aren't we all? <laughs> We're speaking with Dr. Lisa Biggs, who will be returning to her alma mater this Saturday as part of the Amherst Lit Festival. Currently, the John Atwater and Diana Nelson Assistant Professor of Arts and Africana Studies at Brown University. You've worked in theater companies in cities that have very long, rich black theater traditions. Do you think that in your work that there are keystones to the black performance that maybe surpass medium? We're not just talking about tropes at this point with like black theater, but like perhaps especially because you've worked on projects that involve the nuances of black women with women in prisons. Are there certain things about the black experience, especially as it pertains to theater, that somehow shine through in your work? I think, I mean, there is, you know, big commercial theater and people doing it and God bless them. I realized when I was out there that I wanted to tell the untold stories and I wanted to connect people with people who would never ever see themselves on stage um, or on film at the time. Like I said, it's the 90s and so most of the women are crack addicts, crack hoes, bad mothers, or, or kind of basically maids. What I learned is that I, I also had to cultivate uh, and be in spaces where people were committed to creating work that defied stereotype with an ethos of care underneath it. And I think many black theater companies have an ethos of care at their heart because they consider themselves to be part of a larger cultural, social, political, and economic project that is not just about you know, bigger, faster, funnier, making people laugh. It's not even so much about education or edutainment, as they say, but really about an effort to transform people's understanding of um, Black family, Black community life, Black history, and Black culture, to push back against stereotype, especially the most reductive ones, and to share knowledge and experience, including things that we might not have gotten from our parents, but it's so good and powerful that we feel a sense of urgency of sharing with future generations. So the kind of work that I'm interested in lands uh, emerges from those legacies. A Living Stage was one of them, founded in the 1960s, multiracial arts company, but would overwhelmingly worked with low-income black and brown people, elementary school kids, kids in foster care, folks with serious disabilities of all ages, seniors. We did not do big funny shows that uplifted stereotypes about people. We told untold stories. I mean, Living Stages work, like I said, it was a multiracial company, but it stands side to side with theater companies that um, continue to exist all over the country that are committed to an ethos of care as political practice and understand that theater is a space for care work and political organizing and transformation and that women's women have an integral role to play in that coming up 
More with theater maker and author Lisa Brig- Biggs, sorry, who will return to her alma mater, Amherst College, this weekend. We hear about the audition that broke her and about her work bringing the power of theater to the incarcerated. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. We're speaking with Dr. Lisa Biggs, whose first book is The Healing Stage, Black Women, Incarceration, and the Art of Transformation. She has a BA from Amherst College, where she will return this Saturday to talk about this book at the Amherst Lit Festival. In in that ethos of care, your book is about essentially like theater therapy for incarcerated women. Was it some of those stereotypes, some of those auditions in the 90s that you encounter that you that you went through that led to your work with incarcerated women yeah i mean the i would say that the audition that broke me uh it was for a national coca-cola commercial Ten thousand callbacks later uh, my agent calls me and says hey can you get down to the office in the next 10 minutes i'm like no i cannot but i can be there maybe in half an hour and then he said okay great and you'll need to be dressed like a Sherelle meaning as like a chorus girl with shiny legs, high heels, big wig. I am at my part-time job at MCI WorldCom wearing a suit. I tell him like, I think this is probably gonna be a long shot, but sure, I'll go, cause why not? I go, my audition consists of me walking in the room. They say, hey, can you say your name? Lisa Biggs. They say, great, can you turn to the right? I turn, can you turn to the left? I turn, I look back to camera, and they say thank you, meaning my audition is over. Mm. So without me even having a chance to say a word. So that was that that final instance of, you know, this is long before we have Me Too conversations going on. But that was the moment I said, I am not in the right place. I have so much more skill and insight and understanding about the world. And th- there's things that I want to say and that I want to explore. So I'm doing, I'm going to figure out how to do that. And Living Stage was one of those places where I learned to do that. Living Stage also really prepared me in ways I could not have anticipated for working with women behind bars. One of the groups that we worked with at Living Stage, they were uh, women who were in a comprehensive drug and alcohol recovery program in a neighborhood near DC, Anacostia. It was one of the biggest suburbs. And the women came to Living Stage as part of this program called Crossing the River. And uh, so during the day, they got therapy, individual and group therapy for themselves and their families. They got to keep their kids with them on site. This model does not exist anymore because it is it was way too successful. <sighs> yep, yep, doesn't exist anymore. But um, part of the day, they also would come, like maybe once a week for six or eight weeks, they would come to Living Stage and we would do theater workshops with them. And the work was not... It was not therapy. Like none of us were teaching artists. We are not trained counselors. We have no degrees in drama therapy even. But what the people who ran Crossing the River understood was that the women needed other venues or mechanisms, expressive cultural practices, poetry, song, dance, to tell other aspects of story. Um, Could have been about the things that they went through or not. That's the beautiful thing about about theater, especially good theater. It invites us to reflect upon the past, our experiences and our dreams, and to story them in ways 
that are accessible to others. But if it's improv, there isn't a script. And so if you put something out in a scene or a monologue or you sing a song, you make up a song and you say, you know, that doesn't quite hit it. That's not exactly what I want to say. You can go back and repeat and revise. And I'll say what I witnessed as a young teaching artist in those sessions was how powerful it was for the women to not only to tell what they had experienced through a creative lens, but to witness what other people had been through before. Because anybody who's ever worked with anyone with um, a history of substance abuse, especially women, if you don't know, you quickly learn that the overwhelming majority of them are survivors of sexual assaults that happened when they were 10, 11, 12, 9 years old, certainly before they were 13. And that they turned to drugs and alcohol because no one believed them when they told if they told, and that there were no other mechanisms accessible to them that helped them soothe the pain that they were living with. And that pain could be physical, but the psychological and the emotional, the shame, the anger, the rage, the confusion of that traumatic event. The women I met at through Crossing the River 95% of them were also survivors of domestic violence. They had been the target of, of a fist or a backhand or, or a broom or a gun or a belt. And they had survived it. That's why they were in recovery. They were had physically survived and now they were trying to recover themselves and return to the person they would have been had that violence not happened. The theater work by which I mean not only scenes and monologues, but the poetry and the dance, all these elements that can come together in under the, the, the umbrella of a theater piece, of a, of a play, they became vehicles for which they, through which they could explore their growing capacities and, to, and begin to identify the moments of constriction, the feelings of overwhelm, and to be able to f create containers to hold those things and then in sharing them with others or even just with themselves and one other person, they came to realize that though they had been taught they were the only one because that's what sexual violence, that's what you know, child molesters do to you, that's what you know, an abuser will do to you is, is try and convince you that you're the only one and to isolate you that they were not the only one who had been through this and the more stories they heard from each other they began to have a growing sense of ease with their own stories and experiences. And then a sense of like camaraderie that is unshakable to this day. I mean, the root of the book, I met some of the, the women who, who I met many, many, many years ago through crossing the river. I reconnected with them and they, I could do that because they stabilized in recovery because of that program. And Living Stage was a, was a portion of that. But I didn't know decades later when I started researching the book and, and connected with them and started going with them to um, their local county jail, that they were teaching workshops that absolutely mirrored and repeated the things they learned at Living Stage with this new audience and with their additional information. You know, in the jail setting where they were, the, the women they were working with were not getting the kind of comprehensive mental health care or support that they had gotten through this program in Anacostia. And so under those limited circumstances, though, they were determined, absolutely determined to bring this art practice because of the way that it impacted them and the stories that they wanted to tell them about what 
They wanted to share with other women about what it takes to actually heal. Yeah, they understood by then and they taught me that healing is, you know, we have like a kind of a Western model of healing um, in which like you get a diagnosis and then there's somebody offers you a cure, hopefully if it's a curable condition, but there isn't a single cure for deep poverty. There isn't a, a single cure for domestic violence. There's not a single cure for rape, for sexual assault. Um, and for living with the trauma of those experiences. And so what they taught me was that the arts had an integral role to play in a process of self-repair, that they were double-dog daring themselves and others to go on, and that they were the kind of survivors and skilled theater facilitators who were able to hold women, meet women where they were, and to offer them the same kind of loving care and support that they had received that enabled them to, yes, enter recovery and to stay there. And then, you know, kind of that bottle of when you when your cup runneth over, you don't give people a cup, you give people the spillover. They were giving people the spillover. We're speaking with Dr. Lisa Biggs, whose first book is The Healing Stage, Black Women, Incarceration, and the Art of Transformation. She has a BA from Amherst College, where she will return this Saturday to talk about this book at the Amherst Lit Festival. From all of your experiences, like you've performed with Bill T. Jones, you've been at the Kennedy Center. What experiences from that are perhaps most influential on the way that you teach? Mm, Wow, that's a good question. It's funny, like I, I have been in all these incredible theatrical kind of uh, production sites, but when I think about teaching, I do go back to Living Stage as a place because that's where I first learned how to teach. I think I also, you know, I, I go back to um, the work I did with Jennifer Nelson, who was the, um, she's still alive, but her company, the African Continuum Theater, doesn't exist anymore. She was an influence, a brilliant director brilliant. I also model some practices of Rodessa Jones, who is a Black theater maker based in San Francisco, her company, um, the Medea Project Theater for Incarcerated Women. That was a place where I really started, I guess, thinking about how one, um, we wouldn't have called it practices of consent back in the day, but how you create a tone that basically insists that people show up and that they tell the hard story. Living Stage, we, we invited people into sessions of play. You could, you could tell a hard story if you wanted to, but in the end, we, that was not our project. But Rudessa is a person who, she is serious about getting to what she calls the real. And by that she means, you know, identifying the myths that circulate as truth and the misinformation and unpacking that stuff and then asking people in the workshop, what really happened? What's the real? Can you step into that space and hold it for us, with us? Oh, and I would say also um, from my grad school years, DeSoyani Madison and E. Patrick Johnson, performance studies scholars. Whew, yes, (laughs) the word, they redefine close reading for me. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Lisa Biggs, returning to her alma mater, 
at Amherst College this Saturday, but currently a professor of the arts and Africana studies at Brown University in Providence, where I used to skip school and hang out on Thayer Street all the time. Uh, now you're going to come back to Amherst. What is something that you are looking forward to doing, seeing, or eating when you uh, come back to where you had your undergrad, Dr. Biggs? Wow. Um is the black sheep still there? Yes, it is. Yes. Cafe? Yep. All right. So, uh, <laughs> two of my professors, Wendy Woodson and Suzanne Dugan, they were instrumental in launching me on this journey. They introduced me to that space, and I'm delighted it's still there. <laughs> um, just to date myself completely, I remember when they opened the Antonios. Ah, wow. <laughs> Aparna Nancherla, who was on the show last week, was talking about how they're excited to go back to that slice shop there. They still on have North, tortellini on North slices. Present. Still tortellini on slices. <laughs> Individual slices of giant pizza. Wow. Pretty good. Wow. Well, so things are really different, though. I mean, when I like I said, I remember when they opened the Antonio, so there yeah, wasn't yeah. Um, there was no Amber Hadley. Cinema, no the Drake back, and all that. Maybe the old Drake was still there then. I don't know what that is. It was is. a bar. <laughs> Now, now, it's a, now it's a performance space. A performance space. Yes. With a bar. Oh no, with it wasn't bar. there. If it yeah, was with... there, it was it was unknown to me. Yeah. No. <laughs> I remember we, dark nights when we would, um, if the before the bus stopped running, we would go to the stop and shop and just walk around. <laughs> <laughs> Even when I moved to Amherst in the early part of the this millennium, it was kind of boring. Like I that feel like too, that's so. a universal college thing, though. Like I went to to Kenyon in the middle of nowhere, so like I, we had to find somebody with a car to go to the Kroger, but the Kroger was open 24 hours, so we would also walk around the shelves at night. Yeah, yeah. We would go to Denny's. <laughs> anyway. Everything else I want to add, like, I want to pick your brain about so much because your your work is fascinating. I did read your essay about Rudisha Jones' is, uh, Big Butt Girls and Hard-Headed Women, Hard -headed which was just, women. like, fantastic. It was just fascinating. But we're going to encourage everybody else to, to take a look at that. You can read it on Professor Biggs's website. And thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us before you head back to your alma mater to talk about all your work. Thank you both so much. It was really a pleasure to talk with you. Looking forward to Lit Fest. Yay! <laughs> See you everybody soon. <laughs> Lisa Biggs is a part of the reading happening at Lit Fest on February 24th at 3 p.m. That's on Saturday in the afternoon. Find out more on Amherst College's website. Up next, should the Connecticut River have its own rights? Western Mass Rights of Nature thinks so, and so do many of the indigenous communities of these lands. We'll talk with Livia Charles from Western Mass Rights of Nature, as well as Diane Dix from the Nolambika Project, and Hartman Dietz from the Mashpee Wampanoag Tribe, who also serves as a Native American cultural consult for the Charles River Watershed Association. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEP. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. Tomorrow, Friday, February 23rd at 7 o'clock at Greenfield Community College and live streamed on YouTube, the Quinecticut Rights of Nature for the Long River, Western Mass Rights of Nature, in collaboration with the Nolambika Project, invites you to this free presentation and discussion about rights of nature for the Long River. 
that many of us call the Connecticut River, led by Hartman Dietz, activist, artist, and member of the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe. Joining us from Western Mass Rights of Nature is Livia Charles. From the Nolan Beka Project is Diane Dix, and we are hoping to later be joined by the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe's Hartman Dietz, who also serves as Native American cultural consultant for the Charles River Watershed Watershed Association. That is hard to say. Yeah, and we think maybe the AT&T outage may be keeping <laughs> Hartman Dietz away from the phone call. We're it is try- a real thing happening we, right now, people. Yeah, we are trying to work that out. But uh, meanwhile, we'll talk uh, a little bit with the the folks that are helping to organize this event. Let's start with the organizing, one of the organizing bodies of the event, the Nolambika Project. And Diane Dix, tell us, uh, if people aren't familiar with the Nolambika Project, what it is and what you're all about. Well, um, we're a cultural group, mainly educational regarding Native American affairs. We're non-tribal. And um, I wish I was on the website because I'm nervous. So I'm Oh, don't be oh. nervous. We won't bite. <laughs> All right. Unless you ask so, nicely. Um, <laughs> Consent is important. I yes. was, <laughs> okay. All right. Um, we're a non-tribal group that that works to help people understand that there was history for the tribes in the Northeast that we never learned. It was pretty much wiped out. So what we learned in school was based on um, fiction. And uh, and we're trying to compensate for that by, by creating cultural and educational programs for the public and um, help help uh, decrease the divide. I know that one of the projects uh, that Nolan Bika has been working on, apart from the two that we're going to talk about that are happening uh, this weekend, is is the battlefield study that's been going on uh, in regards to what people might call the Turner's Falls Massacre. I know that there was a big article in the Montague Reporter last week about uh, more developments about trying to uncover that particular history. David Brule, who is the president of the Nolan Beaker Project, uh, is a neighbor of mine, walks by my house <laughs> pretty much every day with his beautiful dogs. But the the purview of the Nolan Beaker Project uh, expands to where? What, what About what t- area are you covering there, Diane? Well, we, we're mainly covering the valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, the Connecticut River Valley here in Massachusetts. But Overall, we honor Northeastern tribal heritage, and there, there is a relationship between the tribes that we've learned about how travel from the coast where Hartman's people are from to here was, was a, a normal thing. It would take them three days, but they, they were here too. So um, trying to uncover the history that was lost to us for a very long time. We learned the story of the pilgrims coming and having their first Thanksgiving, and that's all we learned about mm-hmm. the tribes in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. And the, the, and we were also told they were all dead, that the tribes no longer existed, and that's not true either. So our celebrations, including the festival, are to honor that and celebrate their continued presence. 
One of the events will be happening tomorrow evening at Greenfield Community College at 7 o'clock. It has to do with the rights of nature and the rights uh, of the Connecticut River. Now, I know the Connecticut River, especially not far from where the massacre happened in 1676, uh, was an important gathering place for indigenous communities. Um, And Western Mass Rights of Nature is an organization that's working to bring rights to the Connecticut River, from what I understand. Livia Charles is uh, from Western Mass Rights of Nature. Tell us about um, Rights of Nature as a global movement and and your role in this in Western Mass. Yeah, especially because I don't think people necessarily understand this isn't just a regional thing. This is a global movement to to reintegrate indigenous and aboriginal lands and and spaces back to the people who were originally there. Yeah. um, Well, hi. Thanks so much for having us. Um, So Western... (laughs) Western Mass Rights of Nature is a group that formed about a year ago in this region. Um, And like you said, we're just a chapter of this sort of larger Rights of Nature movement. Um, And so our group's sort of effort is to bring about, and as well as the Rights of Nature movement in general, is to bring about legal and cultural changes to recognize the rights of natural entities, which includes their right to exist, thrive and um, to flourish and to evolve and be restored. Um, So particularly like what we've been working on are kind of two things. Um, One has been this more pressing issue around the relicensing of high impact hydropower facilities along the Connecticut River and advocating for the river in those relicensing processes. Um, And then we're also, yeah, just kind of the more general um, effort to uh, bring about cultural change to recognize our interdependency with the river, the fish, and the rest of the natural world. Um, And, yeah, just just recognizing our embeddedness within Earth systems rather than seeing ourselves as separate and superior to the natural world in these natural entities. Um, And that's kind of like the ideas, the philosophies that are behind the Rights of Nature movement. And those stem from indigenous knowledge systems. So it's very connected with um, also advocating for indigenous rights and sovereignty. And like you said, there are cases all across the world. So there are over 450 Rights of Nature cases across the world. And just in the United States, over 100 communities and Native nations have passed rights of nature laws. So it's super exciting and we just, yeah, we're very, um, we're excited to be a part of it here locally. It's really cool that this is a collaborative effort, not just with the Nolan Beeka project, but with local conservation efforts in the Connecticut River Valley. Can you talk about how the, how, or rather, let me let me rephrase this to be, has it been different working with the Nolumbika Project as opposed to other conservation organizations that are not indigen- primarily indigenous-focused? Um, yeah, I would say definitely. I mean, I, I'm, kind of, I'm very new to this work, and I'm pretty young, but um, I have worked for environmental nonprofits for four years, and this is my first time working with an indigenous or native-based organization. And I think, like, um, we were, we tabled at the Patumtuk, God, am I saying that right? Patumtuk. Patumtuk. Thank you. Festival over the summer. And I think there's just sort of this 
oh, let's see if I can express this. Um, this this knowing that we need to reconnect not only to um, the local natural ecosystems, but also to each other and this need for healing both um, amongst the humans and the natural world that is oftentimes missing in our kind of anthropocentric legal system and this need to like go 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 and constantly put out these fires of like you know uh, whether it's fossil fuel fracking coming in or um, high impact hydroelectric facilities um, that we don't kind of slow down and realize that this healing is really necessary um, in order to make change rather than just staying in this system that's not working for for us nor um, the rest of earth systems. That's Livia Charles from Western Mass Rights of Nature, who will be part of an event happening tomorrow, February 23rd at 7 o'clock at Greenfield Community College, advocating for the rights of nature for the Long River or the Connecticut River. I think, uh, Livia, there might be people listening to this and say, you know, we're struggling to get voting rights for human beings. We're struggling to get equal rights for women and people of color. When they hear about advocating for rights of, of a river... Maybe it's something that they aspirationally understand or would hope for, but um, they might think, what, what does that actually mean? So when you say that there's laws that have been passed that have granted rights to different environmental things, what, what do those laws say and how do they play out in real time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so something that's kind of cool about the rights of nature is that it's a very local based. So... Different communities, as I said, across the world are using it for their particular needs and to meet their particular geographic identities. So, for example, Grant Township, Pennsylvania, is a small rural town with like under 700 people, and they passed a rights of nature law back in, gosh, I think it was 2014. Um, and so they just they passed an ordinance through local democracy, um, through local governance process, uh, local governance process. And um, after 10 years of fighting this um, fracking injection well that was coming into their community, they were able to stop it, um, in part by suing the company that was coming in. And then also by just doing a lot of advocacy, and um, they also passed the civil disobedience law. So in that case, it was used more reactively to stop this um, environmentally harmful project from coming in. Whereas in a place like Santa Monica, California, they also passed a rights, rights of nature ordinance. Um, and theirs was more proactive, so they did not have an impending um, threat coming into their community, but they instead... Um, incorporated these philosophies that um, rivers, the watershed, the air, that um, these entities should have rights into policy and into um, their sustainable, sustainability plan. And actually, they cited this ordinance and the rights of nature as a reason for banning um, private wells. And then I'll just give one more example. There's a million examples. Um, in New Zealand, they've um, granted legal personhood to the Whanganui River and also the Te Arewera um, Forest. The Māori iwis or tribes have done this. And so this has basically allowed for the Western um, colonial management systems to be removed so that the Māori um, people can govern 
and manage the land with their traditional um, practices. So it it really it can be used in all of these all of these different ways um, depending on what the community needs. But something that I think is um, true for almost all of the cases is that it's very grassroots and it's really about um, yeah advocating for the community and the individual needs or the the needs of the um, yeah the community <laughs> the ecosystem and the people. People might remember, and this was a story that was much uh, lambasted as like the most Northampton-y story of all time, but there was a Buddhist priest who happens to be a Northampton resident, who happens to be part of a speaker series that we'll be focusing on on Monday's show with Elon Stabans, who made these cherry trees in Northampton. She, as a Buddhist priest, gave them and granted them their personhood on Warfield Place, ultimately as an attempt to try to get the city of Northampton not to cut down the cherry trees. city of Northampton did cut down the cherry trees, um, but it's an interesting conversation that's come up in other ways. And we are speaking with Livia Charles from Western Mass Rights of Nature. I, and you mentioned the Connecticut River, and I've mentioned a couple times uh, Turner's Falls, Great Falls, Wissatinawag, depending on how you want to call it. There are real threats with a relicensing of that dam. I want to talk a little bit more about those things with that particular relicensing. And I want to hear about other uh, things in in nature in Western Mass that you'd like to grant rights to with the organization, Livia. We're also joined by the Nolambicas Project, Diane Dix, who's hosting an event about this, and specifically in respect to the Connecticut River tomorrow evening at Greenfield Com- Community College. We'll take a little break. We'll keep trying. That AT&T will come back, and maybe we'll get to talk with Hartman Dietz, the keynote speaker, on the other side of this break. And either way, we will also talk about the second event that's kind of part of this weekend. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Clay Smith. Tomorrow, Greenfield Community College, Rights of Nature for the Long River with Western Mass Rights of Nature in collaboration with the Nolambika Project. We're joined by Diane Dix of the Nolambika Project. And this is a little bit of an aside, Diane. But during this show, there was a testimonial about donating to any PM that was voiced by somebody named Diane Dix. Is that you? <laughs> I thought that was deliberate. Yes, that was me. <laughs> so it was not deliberate. It was not intentional. We had no idea. And I heard it, and I was like, Diane we Dix? Like, she's coming on the coming show, on the show. <laughs> later. So uh, I guess this amounts to a full disclosure. We appreciate your contribution, but we should say it has absolutely nothing to do with why we invited Neither you on. Neither of us really knew that that had happened. We had no, we had no idea that that was going to happen today. It's just a, a fun happenstance. Um, I know the it other... It's a fun happenstance. And I also want to say... I'm disabled, and Katie Wright came from the station to my living room to do that interview. Come on. Shout out to Katie Wright. That is wonderful. A great little story. Okay. Now that that shameless plugging and full disclosure is over, back to business (laughs) about the rights of nature. Uh, Well, I'm I'm glad you you brought that up. (laughs) And I'm I'm sorry that Hartman isn't here so that he can speak for himself. Something that I want to understand, but I cannot, because I wasn't raised that way, and that is the the, the indigenous connection to nature. That somehow the culture that we were raised in didn't didn't um, didn't help uh, make us feel. We always felt that separation. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
with, with nature. We always felt the dominance over nature, or maybe we didn't feel it, but that's what we were taught. I totally agree. In addition to everything else. And, um, in the 1970s, I met a man named Byron Dix, and he and Jim Mavor wrote a book called Manitou. It was published in 1988, and that helped me learn in my head what it is that's different from our culture and the indigenous culture. And Manitou is basically that there is a spirit in everything. And, you know, to be working on this rights of nature, this, you know, with, with the Western Mass rights of nature means a lot to us because um, it brings the cultures together. And if, if I can't learn it, if I can't be raised with that kind of tradition that Hartman speaks so eloquently about in his writings and in his words, that maybe having events like this, and, and like the Comtuck Homelands Festival, which is held at a very significant place, culturally, historically, and spiritually, to the, the uh, Native nations of the Northeast, because they, many came here from all over the uh, Northeast, to this region, the Pecumtuck region, every year to share in the the, um, the fish runs at, at the falls. So there there is a, a deep connection, I think, between the rights of nature work and the Nolan Beaker Project. And the Nolan Beaker Project teaming up with Rights of Nature of Western Mass for this event tomorrow at GCC. You've mentioned the the falls, uh, Great Falls, where the Pecumtuck Homeland Festival happens in the fall, and with Satinawagas being this gathering spot, the relicensing of those dams there um, has a major, will have a major impact on the river. I live on that river. I live and watch the canal that is always full while the river is often very, very low. This is one of the issues your organization is helping to uh, fight for, Livia Charles? Yes, it is. That is a big part of our work. Um, and advocating for the river and its rights um, throughout this process. And actually, just today, we were notified that um, the comment period for the public to, yeah, I guess, comment on the, um, on the license has started. So if you go to Western Mass Rights of Nature's website, pretty soon we'll be putting up um, yeah, a link or something to where people can go and make comments about these facilities, which, like you said, will be extremely, extremely um, harmful for the river and the ecosystem and the fish. So we, yeah, we're, we're, we're advocating for the river in that. Is it possible that some of those comments might be uh, obtained at this event itself, like either in the comments from people watching the live stream or written down when people come to the event? Yeah, that is a really good question. I actually don't know, but I um, I think tomorrow at the event we will definitely be talking about this and providing um, information about how people can leave comments. Um, but 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I would just say go to our website. Also, the Connecticut River Conservancy is a good uh, resource to find out more about that and how you can get involved with that. There are a bunch of major community stakeholders that have been working or trying to work with the utility company to come up with some sort of fair or healthier compromise. Uh, before we go, we were hoping to talk with Hartman Dietz. We think it has to do with AT&T that perhaps we couldn't get through to him. He was standing by. He was emailing us, and then he, we called him a million times and went right to voicemail. But he uh, and... Uh, Asa Peters from the Mashpee Wampanoag Tribe are doing another event at GCC on Saturday, in Easter, a gathering in Eastern Woodland Social Dance. Um, that's another event that is sponsored by the, the Nolambika Project. Uh, and the event about rights of nature is tomorrow night. Both of them are happening at Greenfield Community College. Yes, 7 o'clock tomorrow night, Greenfield Community College. Uh, Olivia Charles from Western Mass, Rights of Nature, Thank you so much. And Diane Dix from the Nolan Beaker Project, an NEPM supporter. <laughs> <laughs> also, thank you so much. Uh, thank you. It's worth you. noting that um, when we launched this show a year ago today, a year ago today, we asked it's NEPM, birthday. it's our birthday, we asked <laughs> NEPM listeners to tell us what they thought was fabulous about the 413. And we're lucky because we still hear from you about it uh, pretty frequently. We got an email today from Amy Melbin, who writes, Western Mass is fewer cars, more stars. Ah, the constellations. Living in several just west of Boston communities for 35 years as a young and then middle-aged adult was endlessly engaging. But later, the crowded roads for both very short or longer urban trips seemed increasingly to be wasted time and energy. I watched my dad make that commute from Lexington, uh, from like Norton to Lexington. It took him like an hour and a half every day for this like 15 mile commute. Yeah, my dad would go from, from Roxbury to, to um, Belmont. Yeah. And it took like an hour and some change. Uh-huh. She continues, in our most recent place there, in a particularly lovely, safe outlying town, we were under one of Logan Airport's jet flight paths. Every third Sunday, starting at 6.20 a.m. and then every 20 minutes, the jets would fly in low and loud in the preparation for landing. It sure was a shorter ride to Logan than from Western Mass, but like many out here, happily, I don't have to fly out of Logan often and so glad to now be skipping the nearness of that flight pattern. Thank Thank you for inviting us to pipe up, dear fabulous 413. Very sweet letter from Amy Melbourne. And yes, uh, I much prefer flying uh, out of Hartford whenever I, mean, I can help it. It's just nicer. Yeah, and easier. And easier to park. <laughs> Friday on the fabulous 413, a touch of high fashion in Holyoke at the new brick and mortar store on High Street. We'll hear about the mission of Paper City Fabrics. Live Music Friday takes us out of our studio and into the Chicopee practice space of the bass and drum punk rock duo Film and Gender. We'll hear about CSA Week and talk about the economic impact of farm shares with CESA and Rivershed Farm in Amherst. And the White Thunderdome gets homegrown and into the NEPM kitchen, perhaps. What? Yeah. I'm Monty Belmonte. (laughs) I'm Khalees Smith. We'll see you tomorrow on the Fabulous 413.